grass, known for being green, famous for being mowed. Nobody thinks much about it, so let's have some fun. Let's find out why grass is secretly incredibly fascinating. Folks, welcome to a whole new podcast episode of Podcast All About Why Being Alive is More Interesting Than People Think It Is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm not alone because I'm joined by my co-host, Katie Golden. Katie, what is your relationship to or opinion of grass? Neutral. Um, yeah, that's it's, fair. You know, it's there. It's green. Sometimes comfortable to sit on. Sometimes it's too damp to sit on mowed lawns like like really nicely kempt lawns don't do a lot for me either i don't know it's fine but like i'll take a kind of wild meadow over a clean mowed lawn anytime yeah i don't need a lawn to be totally uniform and perfect and i now have a little bit of a backyard and i've been mowing it with a real mower which is not the electrical kind you know it's you just push it oh the little push mower yeah. Yeah. It's relatively quiet. It feels great. And then I don't worry about the composition of the various plant species. I just right. cut what's there and I'm glad about it. It's great. Is it one of those mowers that got the little balls in them that it's the Fisher Price mower that goes like tonka to tonka to tonka and there's like little balls that <laughs> I thought that was supposed to be a mower. Is it supposed to be a vacuum or is it just like a colorful balls uh, push unit? I guess it just trains infants and toddlers to be prepared to push things as adults. Yeah. That society demands be pushed. Get trained for manual manual labor, babies. <laughs> Here is a Fisher-Price uh, telemarketer phone. Here's a Fisher-Price uh, pickaxe. Uh, get to work, babies. <laughs> yeah, and, and this topic, it's truly background, truly around us, not thinking about it. And so yeah. many thanks to at Joe Beam on the Discord and many thanks to at Ornery Weevil on the Discord, which uh, especially amazing name by the second suggestion there. I love an Ornery Weevil, probably lives in grass. It's very good. Yes. You know what? You're right. I don't spend my time thinking about grass. You think I can devote brain power to thinking about grass? No. This is one of those SIF topics where I said, okay, I'll find out what's going on with grass. And it turned out to sort of be the entire topic of plants' life on Earth. Oh, dear. Which is very exciting. Yeah. There's a lot here. And our first fascinating thing is a quick set of fascinating numbers and statistics. This week, that's in a segment called... Bump, 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 bump. It's time to read the numbers. It's time to hear the stats. It's time to learn statistics on this new Sifpod tonight. <laughs> And that name was submitted by Jacob on the Discord. Thank you, Jacob. We have a new name for this every week. Please make them as silly and wacky and bad as possible. Submit through Discord or to sifpod at gmail.com. Off of Muppets, this week's numbers quickly bring us into takeaways. But the first number this week is all four of the top four. What? All four of the top four. Huh? And the the list we're talking about here is the world's most grown crops by weight. 
it turns out all four of the top four crops in the world are grasses biologically. Huh. Okay. So talking, what kind of grass are we talking here? Are we talking about edible grass? Are we talking about smokable grass? What sorts, what sorts of grass is this? <laughs> this would be a really fun topic to reveal that I am a 1960s marijuana guy. That would be <laughs> a real character change. <laughs> but yeah, this, this word grass, I think to most listeners probably means lawn grass, turf grass, like a green lawn in the United States. We are going to talk about that a bunch. In order to talk about that, we should talk about sugarcane, maize, rice, and wheat, and many, many other plants that are grasses biologically. Wow. Okay. I didn't realize the grass family was so diverse. It's about 10,000 species. Oh, wow. There's another number. Look at that. It includes many crops, which deserves its own takeaway number one. Kind of most of the crops we eat are grasses. Tell you tell me that we're nothing but a bunch of cows munching on grass. And I like cows so much, so that feels good. I'm into that <laughs> categorization. They're so sweet and wonderful, and I wish we could all aspire to that, you know? You it's can great. call Alex a cow. He, he'll be like, thank you. <laughs> How kind of you. You cow. Yes, thank you. Yeah, if you go around calling me a Hereford, I will shake your hand. Uh, if you call me an Angus, I will high-five you. I have a different reaction for each breed. It's great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what about a Highland a Highland cow? Highland. Then I do the woogity-woogity-woogity that Arnold and Gerald do on Hey Arnold. Nice. Yeah, that's, a, that's a rare one. Those are my favorite because their hair is so shaggy. They look like little mops. Yeah, somebody on this season of Great British Bake Off makes a bread that looks like one of their heads. It's what? awesome. It's very good. A bread? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's adorable. All right. So we're all cows, essentially, eating grass. But, you know, last time I checked, Alex, my dinner was not a plate of just grass. So what the heck do you mean uh, most of our crops is grass? This is such a fundamental mind shift to think about it. I love it. It turns out that the about 10,000 plant species in the grass family include the top four crops on earth, sugarcane, maize, also called corn, Rice and wheat also includes barley, oats, rye, millet, sorghum, and the the general broad genetic relationship between those crops and our lawn grass is really coming down to a few advantageous mutations. There's also human cultivation altering them, but hmm. in some cases, even just one mutation turned a wild grass, like a tall grass, into a crop we all eat. So, Which is amazing. So is lawn grass and the crops that we eat all domesticated, like domesticated from wild grasses? Yeah, pretty much. Especially because in a place like the United States or Canada, we'll talk later about how these lawn grasses often come from other continents. And so in the process, there was usually some human selection and some human impact on what those look like today. Hmm. That's really interesting. I mean, it's like... I think it's very clear when you've got a chihuahua and you look at a chihuahua next to a wolf, like what humanity is capable of in terms of genetic selection. But I think it's less obvious with plants because we look at corn and it's like, that looks natural. Sure. Uh, but no, it's it's the chihuahua of grasses. Yeah. I'm especially excited to link people to our past episode about maize, a.k.a. corn. Corn. 
me and Katie talk about how that plant started as a tiny, weird little head of grass. And then it has just been something we massively expanded the size of and deliciousness of on purpose as people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the change is even more simple to turn a grass into a crop. One source this week is the book 1491 by author and science writer Charles C. Mann. He says that wheat and barley, both of those crops, they come from one key type of mutation. And then we, we went from there. With many grass species, their seeds are near the top of the plant, near the very top of that stem or blade. And what happens is the stem shatters. The hmm. technical term is shatters, which means the seeds break off and dribble to the ground. There's enough seeds where the weight and everything else just makes them drop, and that helps the plant spread. Wild wheat and wild barley are both grasses that had one mutation where they don't drop the seeds. And when humans run with that from there, you get a stalk of wheat with a bunch of delicious seeds, which we call grains or cereals on top of it. And mm. that, in a super simple way, is the difference between your yard and a field of wheat. There's more to it, but also there's kind of not more to it. Right. Because like if the seeds fall off of the grass, then it's on the ground. Then you've got to have like a little bird beak to pick off those seeds from the ground. But if they're still on the plant... You can harvest it with a big, big blade, with a big tractor thing, you know, farming instead of just being a, you know, getting a flock of birds to peck at the ground. Little heads up for listeners. Our stats song has definitely Muppets filled me, maybe for the day. And <laughs> when I thought about birds, the first bird I thought of was the Swedish chef chasing that chicken. So, yeah, uh, this is, this is going to be a thing today. It's great. <laughs> Because that chicken's like, great, just gobble up seeds on the ground. We as humans said, I want a whole field of plants that don't drop the seeds. I will spread and propagate this species in a limited and, and contained way myself. That's my plan. Yeah. Swedish chef had those real hands, which freaked me out just a little bit. The Muppets <laughs> that have the real hands. Maybe, I mean, when it's a, when it's a Muppet, like, uh, I think Fozzie has real hands and it's okay. The problem with the Swedish chef is he's humanoid. He uh, he haunts my dreams. <laughs> this broad classification thing, and, and we've talked about how taxonomy can be misleading, but these plants are related in a fundamental way that is interesting. And it's created a situation where these approximately 10,000 species cover a huge amount of the earth. And another source this week is the book Grasses and Identification Guide, by Yale University botany teacher Lauren Brown. She gives us some numbers. She says grasses cover about one-third of the land on Earth. Wow. And they cover about one-half of the United States specifically. Is this before or after uh, we put a bunch of asphalt around? It's after, yeah. Wow. As much asphalt as we put on the ground, there's also lawns, farm fields in, in mostly different countries than the United States, forests of bamboo. There are all kinds of plants that are grasses. Bamboo is a grass, huh? It's a grass, it turns out. It's just wow. different from the Kentucky blue yeah. on your fancy try, lawn. Try your little little push mower on a bamboo forest, Alex. See how that turns out. <laughs> I don't know why I'm being so mean to you, but... <laughs> yeah, you try you try your your little mower on a, on a big bamboo field, Alex. 
You and pandas giving me a noogie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Man, bullied by pandas. What a state to be in. <laughs> Nature's biggest nerd. Yeah, so that's that's the most global and broad sense of the word grasses. And we won't really talk about crops the rest of the show, but there are all kinds of amazing grasses that most humans are not eating. And here's another number about that group. The number is up to 90%. That's how much of a grass plant's weight can be under the ground. Hmm. Like the mass of the plants. Grasses can be mostly made of roots uh, and then very little plant up top. The big exception to that is quote unquote lawn grass. Mm. I mean, I know that. So I know that grass ha- plays a big role in preventing erosion, particularly wild grasses. And I think that was one of the reasons we had the Dust Bowl uh, in the in the 1940s. Yeah, we had replaced the wild grasses that had these deep, complex root systems with crops that had le- less of a root system, and so the topsoil just kind of blew away in dry weather. So yeah, it's like understanding root systems is very important for the economy. Yeah. And for all life on earth. It's great. Yeah, that too. Eh. Less important than the economy, all life on earth. I mean, is all life on earth good for the economy? Oh no, we're thinking too big, too big. Rate it in. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Again, I'm thrilled about this topic because it becomes brain-explodingly global and covering all plant life. Yeah. And in general, many grasses are mostly made up of roots with only a little plant above the ground. Because takeaway number two, many grass plants are mostly a root system for a bunch of amazing reasons. There's at least five reasons here for a species of grass to want to grow a massive root system under a relatively small blade above the ground. Can I guess one reason? Yeah. They keep getting eaten by herbivores and cows. That's right. Yeah, with most grass species, the key parts of the plant that grow the rest of the plant are very, very low to the ground, like just above the part where they stick out of the ground. And so also having an extensive root system helps them survive losing most of their top part to a cow or a lawnmower or something else. Right. So that's why you can mow your lawn or you could have grazers in a field and all the grass doesn't necessarily die. Yeah. My favorite example with that grazing, I'm going to link an amazing piece by science writer Ed Young about North American bison. Mm, Oh, bison. Bison. That's a new one. I've never heard of bison before. (laughs) (laughs) And an amazing number in that piece is from a study of how bison trample and graze grasses. The study found that grasses contain 50 to 90 percent more nutrients by the end of the year because bison open up new green shoots to new sunlight. Like they eat the taller, older plants, and then the new plants have more sunlight. And so this grazing can even be beneficial for a population of grass. Yeah, that's that's what's so interesting is a lot of these, you'll see these relationships between animals where like one animal eats the other or an animal eats a plant, and then it turns out that's actually good for the plant. Or when you have one animal preying uh, on another, 
it doesn't necessarily mean that's good for the individual, but it could be good for the entire population due to like making sure the population's not too dense and preventing the spread of disease, things like that. And it's really cool, these relationships with plants, because you can like, typically is not the case with animals, like where you can eat part of a living plant and it's still alive. <laughs> There's such a close and intimate <laughs> relationship between animals and plants. And it's not always, uh, often it can be sort of mutualism, which is where each party benefits. Yeah, and grass benefit partly by really, really rooting into the ground. Like, like, I think I'd heard the figure of speech grassroots, like a grassroots movement. And I, I wondered because I thought, oh, isn't grass like the weakest plant? Why would that be an interesting root? But it, it turns out, smartly or not, that's sort of referring to the enormous root systems of especially tall grasses and prairies. I have literally never thought of that. I guess just... I've I've never thought beyond just like, oh, grassroots organization, just not thinking about what it means, just passively yeah. accepting this weird phrase. Uh, but yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I've like pulled up a little bit of grass at soccer practice. It's very yeah. easy as a yeah. little child. And then people are like, we need a powerful grassroots movement. Yeah. Which, you know, in many of our heads should be weak, but it turns out the roots are super strong. It's cool. Did you ever try to eat grass when you were a kid? No. Wasn't interested, I, did. I don't think. Yeah, I was interested in it. The best part is like sort of the part nearest to the ground, though, which I guess is the part you shouldn't eat because that's like uh, the part that grows <laughs> the grass. But yeah, no, you know, it's pretty good. Oh. I ate a lot of things when I was a kid. Snails, dirt, grass. Our bison listeners are going to be so mad to hear how you ate that. <laughs> oh, man. They're going to be like, that's wrong. So I said we have at least five reasons that grasses grow huge root networks. One is that they are able to survive grazing that way. Another related reason is they can survive getting stepped on. Hmm. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. That's another thing that's just low-key interesting about grass is that we constantly step on it, and it's usually okay. Yeah. I guess if you're nature's carpet, you got to be okay with things stepping on you. Yeah, and, and stepping can kill grass, but it turns out the worst thing for grass with stepping is if the dirt gets compacted by like mm. very heavy stepping or constant stepping because that gets at the roots. Uh, but otherwise, their their growth parts are very low to the ground. If the top of the plant gets bent or squished, they're they're usually okay. And they're they're really built to be stood on primarily because they have extraordinary root systems that keep them in place and are most of the plant. So maybe I shouldn't do river dancing on grass while yeah. wearing weighted clothing. Yeah, you should do it in the river, like the name says. You should be <laughs> on a raft or something. <laughs> and third reason here is that big root systems let a grass store lots of water under the ground. Yeah, it just is a lot of physical room to hold on to that, and water evaporates much more slowly under the ground. Uh, that's also why a lot of drier parts of the world have robust grasslands as a plant life ecosystem. Right. Because the grass is good at using the water that is there. That makes sense, because you have to go through dry spells. And you see this with animals, too, where they will bury themselves underground with toads, They'll form a mucus seal around themselves. Uh, 
to kind of hibernate during the dry seasons. And it sounds like grass has a similar technique where it's retaining all the water underneath uh, the ground in their root system so that they can, you know, the essential part of the grass can survive, even if uh, a lot of the superficial grass is dried out and dead. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. If you see a sort of not healthy looking grass, it could be doing poorly, but also it could be fine under the ground. You don't actually know because so much is below the surface. It's sort of like an iceberg in my mind now, which I love. Mm -hmm. I I had never thought of grass that way. (laughs) Boats are constantly crashing into it. Like when a boat sees (laughs) some grass, that's not a good sign. You're off course. (laughs) And uh, a fourth reason here is that Grass can basically bully other plants and keep them out of the area Hmm. by just putting too many roots in too much of the dirt. So that's just a power move by grass. But you can have a field of grass where it's basically boxing out other grasses, if people know that basketball rebounding term. Yeah. Nice photosynthesis, nerd. (laughs) Good. Wow. Look at at that stamen, four eyes. (laughs) Maybe the weirdest, coolest reason they'll grow huge root systems is that some grasses primarily multiply by growing new stems underground. Like we were talking before about some grasses shattering from the top. Grasses can also spread their seeds with new stems that are called rhizomes. Mm -hmm. And two two grasses that particularly do this are bamboo. Bamboo tends to root Mm -hmm. very widely rather than deeply, so it can spread as many new bamboos as possible. And and that's how that grass creates what we think of as forests. Uh, And another example is sweet grass, which is a a North American grass cultivated and harvested by many native peoples for baskets, fragrances, cultural ceremonies. And they historically have known how to work with that and support that rhizome growth. And so these are all sort of clonal uh, like you have a forest yeah. of bamboo or or a big sort of field of sweet grass. It's like the, the, a lot of it's going to be clonal from the same organism. That's right. Yeah. And, and that's part of how grass has filled a third of the earth's land. Like we said, there's this amazing root system partly supporting that. I'm so excited to link the United States Botanic Garden in Washington, D.C., because they have exhibits of just how big these roots are in a way you never really get to see in the wild. And some prairie grasses can grow roots up to 15 feet deep. There's another number. 15 feet of roots from a grass that is shorter than that above the ground. And it's an amazing extensive network that we don't know about. I'm looking at this photo of the root system of wheat grass, and there's a gentleman holding it up. And it's like the size of this gentleman, if not bigger. It's like... You're like looking through the crowd and you see someone who has like a tiny head, but then below that tiny head, they have a huge buff body. <laughs> I also am remembering our Max Fun Drive Boko with our buddy David Bell about the Super Mario Brothers movie from 1993. The Goombas in that weird movie are extremely built that way. It's a weird yeah. tiny little hat on the biggest body. <laughs> I, I've got Goomba proportions. <laughs> So yeah, this this situation is across many grass species. There's buffalo grass in North American plains that can go up to eight feet into the ground, even though it's only 10 inches in height. There's vetiver grass is an Indian grass that a lot of people plant all over the world for its root system to hold land in place. 
really the main exception is stuff like Kentucky bluegrass. And part of why lawns often need a lot of human care and human attention is that those grasses don't have huge roots, so they struggle in droughts and they trample easily and they lack all of these advantages that we're talking about from the enormous, amazing grass root systems. Tiny and feeble because of less roots. And most of the rest of the episode is going to be about that feeble grass uh, that could mm-hmm. be called lawn grass or turf grass. It's it's what you're thinking of if you're thinking of a U.S. yard. Yeah. And we have tons more numbers and takeaways about it. The next number is 30 feet. Mm-hmm. 30 feet or more than nine meters. That is the length of a giant yellow picture of a penis drawn <laughs> drawn into the grass of a lawn in the UK city of Bath in England. Is this permanent? Is this just a feature that everyone accepts? So it's a prank. Someone did a prank. Okay, nice. I'm very excited to link the picture because it's just fun. It is... A big picture of a penis in front of perhaps the nicest and most 1700s English buildings I've ever seen. Can I say about this wiener is it's like sort of just perfectly geometrically proportioned. The the, the balls. I mean, anatomically, this is not accurate, but, you know, the, the, the ball portions, these are basically perfect spheres. Yeah. And then the... uh of course, the um, the shaft part is like this, this uh, you know, perfectly straight lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks like they used a giant uh, compass to uh, create this. <laughs> a classic prank protractor. Got to have a protractor for your pranks. <laughs> yeah, and I, I feel like they got the geometry right in order to make very clear it is a penis, just to be pranky. Because they drew this 30-foot penis on the lawn of what's called the Royal Crescent. It's even a fancy name. The Royal Crescent is a semicircle of luxurious 1700s homes, all facing a giant grass lawn. It's it's such a nice place. They film period dramas like Bridgerton at these mm. like lovely buildings and lawn. It's a, a major tourist attraction for Bath. So they chose a really prime lawn to draw the penis on. I wonder if there's like a shot from Bridgerton where you just see this giant wiener in the ground in the background. They're like, oh, whomever shall I choose amongst my suitors? Is that a giant dick? <laughs> Good lord. What if, what if that's in the show but nobody noticed because of all the other nudity and eroticism? Mm-hmm. Uh- <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and they timed this prank for an event in May 2023. The Royal Crescent residents organized a coronation party for King Charles III. And two days before that, a prankster drew this 30-foot phallus. According to professional landscaper Andrea Scharf, they probably used chemicals rather than a mower. Mm-hmm. Because if you overspray fertilizer or use a salt bath, you can turn grass yellow. And a mower wouldn't really get this color change. Right. Now, this is amazing. I mean... I, I think uh, this is the maybe the best form of political expression is saying how you feel with giant, beautiful wieners. Yeah, and and it's my favorite example of lawns being a canvas 
you know, like mm-hmm. many people are going for such a uniform and plain and flat looking lawn that it becomes a space for creativity or a giant penis. And the, and that's something we've invented in the last few centuries. It's really weird. Are we sure, though, this is a prankster and not an alien race trying to communicate with us using the only language <laughs> they know how through wieners? Wow, I didn't realize crop circles could be a grass topic, but right, weed and corn and everything. That's yeah. It's alien. Aliens are writing to us through grass, maybe. Cool. They love grass. Why don't we? It's like now tell them that they are heads, Xenor. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think they will understand this crop circle means we think they are a bunch of dorks? Speaking of the whole earth. We have done a couple humongous takeaways and a bunch of numbers. We're going to take a quick break and then examine the conquest of Earth by various grasses and lawns. Wow. I welcome them. (laughs) Folks, as you know, listener support is what makes this podcast possible. You can hear this show with all the research going into it, all the editing going into it, all of the just plain old effort going into it. That can happen because of listeners directly supporting the show. So thank you to everybody who does that. Go to MaximumFun.org slash join if you think this podcast is worthwhile and think it should exist. I also like that we don't just ask for that. We also try to find a few partners, sponsors, other just awesome things in the world that might be able to add some extra support and make all of that go further. And we have two this week. One of them is the Museum of Flight. A Queer History of Aerospace is a new audio miniseries from the Museum of Flight premiering October 24th. And let me tell you about the Museum of Flight. They are located in Seattle, Washington. They're the largest private nonprofit air and space museum in the world. And A Queer History of Aerospace explores the ways the LGBTQ plus community has shaped aviation and space exploration and the ways the industry has impacted them. By the way, their first episode is an interview with transgender Air Force veteran Michelle Evans. And she has amazing stories. She talks about her whole experience and service. And then also she was on base in Washington State when Mount St. Helens erupted. So there's also just a massive natural disaster element that's very interesting, too. Listen at museumofflight.org slash podcast or search The Flight Deck on your favorite podcatcher. New episode every Tuesday, beginning October 24th. We are also supported this week by Scent Air. And they're not just a friend of the show, they're a friend of my two cats. Their names are Watson and Birdie. And Scent Air's new pet calming complex is in the air around them. It's designed to soothe cats and dogs from unwanted fears, nervousness, general anxiety. So this reduces pet anxiety as well as removing pesky pet odors from all the spaces that matter. Scent Air is simple, easy to use, nice smelling. It's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families, and Ecovatis certified sustainable. I am in a new home. Pets in general, especially dogs and cats, I feel like they have the wisdom to know that something has changed. They have the wisdom to be aware of changes in their environment or just changes in your day-to-day. It doesn't have to be a house move. It can just be a busy or different situation Make that easier on everybody. Give them something that they will enjoy in the air around them with scent air. 
You can try this luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to scentair.com and using promo code SIFPOD for an extra 25% off your first order. That's scentair.com and promo code SIFPOD. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! It's hard to explain what happens on Jordan Jesse Go. So, I had my kids do it. Saying swear words. Saying swear words. Yeah, um, bad jokes. Bad jokes? Bad jokes. Maybe it's like you tell people that you're going to interview them, and then you just stay there like, like really quiet. And try and creep them out. <laughs> it's just really boring. Because of Jordan, right? Not me. Because of both of you. Oh. Subscribe to Jordan Jesse Go, a comedy show for grown-ups. And we are back with two more takeaways. The next one is takeaway number three. The Columbian Exchange caused a grass species apocalypse in the Americas. Uh-oh. Pushed by cattle and palace trends and cars. Uh-oh. This is one of the more mind-boggling things, even compared to the other big things we talked about. A lot of the grass we walk on in the modern United States and Canada and the rest of the Americas was not here before the 1400s. The, the biggest example is lawn grasses, but there has been a giant transplant of grasses from mm. other parts of the world replacing grass that was here. Literally a transplant. But, oh. um, <laughs> so. I've never actually thought about that word in my whole life. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess, uh, I guess these would be, it would be an invasive species then in the United States. Yeah. I think by the basic definition of it, it is like we're used to it now. Right. And it's just here. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like honeybees. Uh, we think of honeybees as nice, natural. They are actually invasive species in uh, North America. We have a bunch of native bees who are uh, indigenous to North America, but honeybees are from uh, Europe. Yeah, and that, that's part of why books like 1491 are just so amazing, because so many animals and plants and cuisines we have are combinations or exchanges of these things. So much of Italian food is based on tomatoes, and they didn't have tomatoes until after the Columbian Exchange. Yeah, and then when I think of Italy in the 1300s, I still imagine spaghetti with the red sauce, no. which is silly. I don't know. It's just a, a thing we all do, and grass is maybe the most fundamental form of that misconception. Yeah. Charles C. Mann specifically says that there's a persistent error in illustrations of Native North America where people draw stuff like Kentucky bluegrass, uh, <laughs> like especially drawings of the Cahokia Mounds in Illinois. They'll, they'll draw grass around or on that. And that just wasn't here. It's 
it's very, very hard to imagine Illinois without this green grass, but it didn't have it. But it had, it had like native grasses, right? It did, yeah. And first starting with what invaded, it turns out that so-called Bermuda grass is a species originally from Africa, even though Bermuda's in the Caribbean. So-called Kentucky bluegrass originated in Europe and in the Middle East. A lot of other plants that we see in those fields like clover and dandelions, those are also from not the Americas. There's been a really profound changeover And before that, the Americas had tall grass prairies. They had many grass species of various sizes and colors. And to be clear, native people did shape the land and the ecosystems around them. There was farming and foresting and active human intervention and nature and what's here. They also allowed many quote-unquote wild grasses to thrive. For example, in what eventually got renamed New England in the northeastern U.S., the grasses there were mostly annuals, such as broom straw and wild rye and marsh grass. So they would, uh, was their use of these grasses, but sort of also kind of keeping them um, not necessarily as uh, in like a farm situation, but making use of the grasses that were there, or would they actively farm these grasses? It was some like gathering, harvesting of grasses, in particular stuff like sweet grass for making baskets and for making other useful things. The biggest biological difference in super general terms was grazing animals. Mm -hmm. There were things like llamas and alpacas in the Americas, but native people weren't generating centuries of labor toward creating pasture grass for sheep or cows or goats or these other animals that were not in the Americas yet. And so so they were doing all kinds of farming crops and other things, but just less attention toward a short green grass for animals to eat. So was the introduction of the invasive species purposeful? Like, did we bring these grasses with us intentionally? It was initially accidental, but then on purpose almost immediately after that. I also want to cite a piece for Scientific American by Crystal DaCosta, the blog of the Smithsonian Gardens, digital resources from the Canadian Encyclopedia. There's a bunch of sources coming together for this story. And the beginning is that Europeans start invading the Americas and there's cargo on their ships, such as hay, that often contained loose seeds of European grasses that could get hauled onto land and germinate. There's also how weeds like dandelions got here. And dandelions are technically flowering herbs, they're not grasses. After that initial accident, then Europeans released livestock that had not been in the Americas to just eat whatever grasses they saw, because they were like, oh, there's weird different grass, you guys can just eat that. They didn't co-evolve with the animals that the Europeans introduced. Exactly. And much like many combinations of a new invasive species... The invasive species of stuff like cattle super overgrazed this native grass and wiped it out, usually in one season, wherever they went. And there are different grazing styles of different ungulates, different herbivores. Like some will eat grass closer to the ground, some will eat like the top of the grass. So like the, it really is important that the animal match the grass in terms of the, like how much evolutionary history they have otherwise like say a bison will eat native grasses in a way that you know encourages their growth and is healthy and sustainable whereas like a pig or a domesticated cow might might eat grass in a completely different way 
uh, eat different yeah. parts of the grass, root around in different ways that actually kills the grass rather than just uh, take some of it and then it can replenish itself. Exactly. Yeah. This this whole thing gets driven by European humans wanting to bring livestock and not caring about whether the livestock were going to kill all the grass. Like, yeah, there, we, didn't, there we didn't. We didn't care about whether we displaced and killed people who lived here. Right. It's hard to <laughs> imagine us caring about grass. Exactly. They were just being careless. And the thing that kind of snapped them out of not thinking about the grass is that with all the grass dead, their animals started starving, which led to the European humans starting to starve. Hmm. So they proceeded to request shipments of seeds, of pasture grass and of clover. Ah, I see, I see. And then on purpose replanting that where they had just wiped out native grass. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, not a lot of planning there. Not a lot of forethought in terms of, (laughs) you know... I guess that the grasses that they sent were more resilient against the uh, the the grazing habits of the animals, given that there was sort of a uh, more more coevolution between those grasses and the domesticated animals that the Europeans brought. That's right. It's it is engineered by people, and I guess you could call it more sustainable. Like once you have caused this apocalypse of the native grasses, then they put in grass that does fit well with the animals that they also invaded with. Right. Like right. once they ruined everything, they set up something sustainable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, hey, waka waka. <laughs> <laughs> I know that Muppet. Uh, <laughs> and also, since we're doing a grass episode, I just Wait, learned. Wait, I a- got a joke. Hang yeah. on. Yeah. I got a Fozzie joke. Ooh, what perfect. do you call it? Wait, what's Fozzie? Hang on, what's Fozzie? What's Fozzie's voice? Ah, is that kind of it? Oh, yeah, that's his. That's the Fozzie. Like, what do you call it when you kill all the grasses that were there? I don't know. It's an herbicide. <laughs> waka waka. <laughs> all right. Um, sorry. Fozzie Bear I live apologize. at the Scotts Lawn and Garden Outlet. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Live at Four Seasons Landscaping, Fozzie uh, Bear, <laughs> followed by Rudy Giuliani. Rudy, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then Statler and Waldorf are like, I don't know who belongs in jail more. Oh, 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 you know? oh, oh. yeah. <laughs> funny. Good stuff. <laughs> There's also, just tucking it into this since we're doing a grass episode and trying to be very comprehensive, I found out clover is not a grass. Because it, it? it has a different head on it and stuff. It is a legume. A legume. Interesting. Isn't peanuts a legume? It is. Anything with seeds and pods is one of the qualities. Yeah. And so clover is sort of so kind of related to like peanuts and beans and lentils and stuff. Never would have thought that. Does anyone have like a clover allergy then? Because like if people have a peanuts allergy, oh. could they have a clover allergy? On the Discord, if you have a clover allergy. Yeah, please. I, I would be fascinated to know what that's like. I hope you're okay. Um, I hope you're okay. It's not my job to worry about it. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so so this wave of European-driven and livestock-driven grass change, that leads to further grass seed exports, especially because not only are farmers releasing livestock animals onto grass they're often not managing it totally well. And so if animals overgraze a patch of the field, 
briars and bushes and other different plants will move in. And so then farmers responded by wanting more seed to undo that. This builds up a huge grass seed industry for agriculture. And that sets the stage for grass seed sellers to say, hey, could I also sell this to homeowners? And they do. And so then we get a lawn industry. And there's many stages and and starts and stops of that. But the earliest lawn owners are the very wealthiest people in the colonial North America and South America. I'm shocked. (laughs) I'm shocked. I know. The wealthy doing something kind of ornamental? You'd never expect it. The, the particularly big drivers of this were Britain and France. The wealthy people in those countries, because they had nobility, were setting up huge lawns at country houses in England or especially palaces in France. And in the 1700s, you needed huge amounts of servants and human labor to do what later stuff like lawnmowers would do. So it took enormous wealth to have, you know, the kind of lawn around Downton Abbey, let's say, or Versailles. You needed like 500 Alexes with pairs of scissors, clipping each blade of grass individually. There's also an odd thing that we also ran into in the ice cream episode we did recently. There's a time period in like the mid-1700s, late 1700s, where Thomas Jefferson and George Washington were key trendsetters for bringing rich European people stuff to the United States. Uh, Mm. apparently Washington was particularly influenced by English country houses. Jefferson was blown away by a visit to Versailles and both of them decided they wanted lawns at their estates Uh, and of course enslaved people to maintain it. But great, which, uh, I understand copying France, but I thought we were just in like a war with England. It's interesting that we're like, well, we won the war. Now we're going to copy your lawns because, uh, we actually think that kind of rocks. Like there wasn't any, any like, we're calling it freedom grass now because we <laughs> hate England. <laughs> That's true. We were treating ourselves as a new country and separate from those places. The richest Americans tried to get lawns. But, but before the U.S. Civil War, it was pretty much just the richest Americans. Uh, in the later 1800s, basic lawn mowing technology starts coming around And by the 1900s, two trends made lawns common all over the United States. One was lots of people trying to have their own piece of property, often with a small lawn. And the other was people gaining mass-produced mechanized luxuries, in particular cars. Hmm. And a car does not help you maintain a lawn, but with road traffic, people started to feel like they needed to have a nice lawn to make their house look nice to people driving by. Like street traffic of cars. Oh, that's wild. Led people to feel social pressure about their lawn in particular. That's wild. So it's like, I want someone's driving by and they're being a little looky loo. I want them to see my lawn with its little gnomes and flamingos (laughs) and signs (laughs) saying, in this house, we support Herbert Hoover or whatever the, whatever the, you know, politician at the time. (laughs) <laughs> that rainbow sign, but for a regressive 1920s politician. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. Like when people were just walking around town, you felt like, ah, not that many people are going to see my house. And then once people, especially living on key roads, were being driven past, 
they thought they're only going to see my place really fast. So the paint needs to look nice on the front and the lawn <laughs> needs to look uniform. It needs to be a good green blur when they're going by. I feel like cars changed American culture so much and not in an in, in not really in a good way entirely. Uh, yeah. I actually wrote a whole episode of that about that on the uh, summer news about uh, going to link it. Great. The whole suburban thing in the U.S. It's like, you know, just having your own little house, having your own little yard and kind of having these little bubbles rather than people living closer together. Yeah. And cars in that exact way really did complete the invasion of new grasses across the Americas and especially the United States and Canada. We were talking about pavements earlier. Pavement has contributed to the replacement of grass. In a lot of other cases, we've just replanted grass from outside the Americas. The thing most removed by that is North American prairies. Hmm. Because before the Columbian Exchange, we estimate that North America had about 170 million acres of tall grass prairie. I know that's not a number you can hold in your head, but it's just nope. big. 170 million acres. No concept of what that is, Alex. <laughs> None. It's now smaller. Today, less than 4% of that prairie still exists. Wow. It's really up there with the rainforests of South America in terms of habitats that have kind of gone away or shrunk. Hmm. Well, I hate that. Yeah. The good news is people have noticed and are trying to bring it back in places like Fermilab in Illinois, but it Ooh. is uh, tricky just because of cities and roads. And also one other... European concept that the United States really ran with, which is golf courses. Ah, yes. Everyone knows that a golf course is not a prairie. Nope. The most amazing thing to me is that it turns out the U.S. government helped. In the 1920s, the golf industry was seeking help developing better turf grasses for year-round golfing. And they did that by collaborating with the USDA. Like the U.S. Department of Agriculture helped develop the grass for golf courses today. Yeah, there's basically the government subsidizing golf courses. And when you live in a city like Los Angeles, you'll notice that most of the big green spaces are either like golf courses or uh, cemeteries, essentially. Yeah, and I'll, I'll link our graveyards episode because we hit on that some there too. But they all pretty much replaced something else. Uh, and right. the thing might have been a forest. It, it might have been different from a grassland. But in some cases, we saw one grassland paved it, built over it, and put in different grass in a truly apocalyptic way if you are a stalk of buffalo grass that can think. You yeah. would see that and think aliens have terraformed the planet. What a nightmarish existence to be a stalk of grass that can think. Oh, yeah, you don't do no that. no mouth. You have no eyes to cry with, no mouth to cry out with. <laughs> This is horrible. Why did you say that? Anyways, horrors beyond our comprehension aside. <laughs> and in terms of regions having totally different grasses than other regions, we have one more fast takeaway for the main episode about the rest of the earth. Because takeaway number four... There are so many grass species on earth, there are two endemic grass species in Antarctica. Oh. Antarctica has native species of grass, even though it is Antarctica. Look at you go, grass. Get you get you go get that. You go get that icy icy <laughs> butt of the planet. 
<laughs> or to- or head. I mean, you know, it depends on which way you flip the planet. I think of it as an icy butt. But, you know, everyone to each their own. Yeah. And, and right away, if, if people want to deep dive on Antarctica, there's a whole passive episode about Antarctica that we'll link because hey. it is just, especially on maps, tucked away as if it doesn't exist. Right. It is like it's just sort of a big ice cube where n- there's nothing but basically ice cube and penguins. Yeah, it's it's the size of the United States and Mexico put together, including Alaska and everything. Like it's humongous, but we don't really think about it down there. Yeah. It's also the coldest and driest and windiest continent on Earth. It's also covered by permanent ice and snow in many portions. Uh, so one of our sources is the British Antarctic Survey. They estimate that less than 1% of Antarctica is, quote, colonizable by plants. Less than wow. 1%. Tough crowd, that ice. <laughs> when it comes to grass. Waka waka. Yeah, and, and other sources here are the Australian Antarctic Program and reporting from The Guardian and from Smithsonian Magazine. They cover the situation where there is an area called the Antarctic Peninsula. It's, it extends north from the rest of the continent toward the bottom of South America. If, if people have seen a picture of Antarctica, there's a point, and that's the peninsula. And it is warm enough and de-iced enough to have lichens, mosses, algae, kelp, and maybe most astonishing, two native species of grass. Wow. They're called Antarctic hair grass and Antarctic pearlwort are the two grasses. Pearlwort is a uh, weirdly pretty and disgusting name. Yeah. And the plant looks really nice. I'm going to try to fit it into the social image for the episode. It has yeah, beautiful yellow flowers. It's beautiful. It's great. It's like a little, little starburst of flowers. It's beautiful. I, I think it would be ecologically messed up if I tried, but I kind of want it in my garden or something. It looks great, <laughs> but I shouldn't bring it here. Uh, that's that's the thing we've been talking about. <laughs> oh, it starts grass apocalypse too. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's very pretty. Yeah, and these are fully complex grasses. It's not some like limited Antarctic version. They have vascular systems. They have flowers. They can perform photosynthesis. And they can photosynthesize at temperatures below zero because they're adapted Amazing. to Antarctica. That's fantastic. It's cool that this exists. I, we think of Antarctica as just dead with some penguins swimming around it. And it has its own grasses. Uh, they're also a little bit of a signifier of global warming uh, because mm. they are thriving more than they have in the past. They're spreading more than they have in the past. And we think it's mainly because of rising global temperatures allowing that. Mm, yeah, that's, you know, good for them. But maybe bad for everything else. Yeah, like I'm still thrilled they exist. And I guess I'm glad they're one more way we can tell that's happening. Like in, yeah. in the most recent decade that they were studied, 2009 to 2018, Antarctic hairgrass spread five times faster than it had in the previous 50 years. Whoa. And Antarctic pearlwort spread 10 times faster than it had in the previous 50 years. So... We are changing the climate, and this lovely grass is one indicator. The penguins are going to be really happy for a time where they're like, great, we got these cool lawns, and then uh, oh. <laughs> everything's going to start melting, and they're like, wait a minute. Right. They're in the exact 1950s clothes of the beginning of the right. suburbs of the baby boom. What like- could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Thank you.
Hey, folks, that's the main episode for this week. Welcome to the outro with fun features for you, such as help remembering this episode with a run back through the big takeaways. Takeaway number one, most of the crops we eat are grasses. Takeaway number two, many grass plants are mostly a root system for a bunch of amazing reasons. Takeaway number three, the Columbian Exchange caused a sudden grass species apocalypse across the Americas, which got pushed by livestock and palace trends and cars. And takeaway number four, the earth is so grassy, there are two native grass species on Antarctica. Those are the takeaways. Also, I said that's the main episode because there is more secretly incredibly fascinating stuff available to you right now. If you support this show at MaximumFun.org, members get a bonus show every week where we explore one obviously incredibly fascinating story related to the main episode. This week's bonus topic is the surprisingly bizarre origins and psychology of AstroTurf. Visit SIFpod.fun for that bonus show, for a library of more than 14 dozen other secretly incredibly fascinating bonus shows, and a catalog of all sorts of Max Fun bonus shows. It's special audio just for members. Thank you for being somebody who backs this podcast operation. Additional fun things, check out our research sources on this episode's page at MaximumFun.org. Key sources this week include a lot of books, such as Grasses and Identification Guide by Lauren Brown, 1491 New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus by Charles C. Mann. We also use tons of digital resources from PBS, National Geographic, the U.S. Botanic Garden, the Canadian Encyclopedia, and more. That page also features resources such as native-land.ca. I'm using those to acknowledge that I recorded this in Lenape Hoking, the traditional land of the Muncie Lenape people and the Wappinger people, as well as the Mohican people, Scattagoak people, and others. Also, Katie taped this in the country of Italy, and I want to acknowledge that in my location, in many other locations in the Americas and elsewhere, Native people are very much still here. That feels worth doing on each episode. And join the free Ceph Discord, where we're sharing stories and resources about Native people and life. There is a link in this episode's description to join that Discord. We're also talking about this episode on the Discord. And hey, would you like a tip on another episode? Because each week I'm finding you something randomly incredibly fascinating by running all the past episode numbers through a random number generator. This week's pick is episode 118, That is about the topic of the Great Lakes, as in the five largest lakes in North America. Fun fact, Lake Superior contains more water on its own than the other four Great Lakes have put together. So I recommend that episode. I also recommend my co-host Katie Golden's weekly podcast, Creature Feature, about animals and science and more. Our theme music is Unbroken Unshaven by the Budos Band. Our show logo is by artist Burton Durand. Special thanks to Chris Souza for audio mastering on this episode. Special thanks to the Beacon Music Factory for taping support. Extra, extra special thanks go to our members. And thank you to all our listeners. I am thrilled to say we will be back next week with more secretly incredibly fascinating. So how about that? Talk to you then. Maximum Fun 
a worker-owned network of artist-owned shows supported directly by you.